Like with Amani's story two weeks ago, this is another very difficult listen. It is another truly avoidable death and the right people did their job and followed up on the disturbing reports correctly. And like with Amani, while there have been reforms since Portia's murder that will hopefully save other innocent lives, it was all too late for this sweet little three-year-old, whose life was stolen because she was a normal curious toddler. This is Portia's story. This story begins before Portia was even born. Her mother, Tiffany Bennett, had already had four children by the time she was 23 years old, and she had come to the attention of human services with several reports of neglect. This escalated in 1994, when Tiffany brought her youngest daughter, only a very young baby, into emergency. She'd lost consciousness and was rushed into intensive care where the baby would later be pronounced dead. The baby's cause of death would later be determined to be related to shaken baby syndrome. Now, Kimberly Flower talks about shaken baby syndrome on her episode on this case. I highly recommend her channel if you watch YouTube. But for a more in-depth discussion about shaken baby syndrome, watch her video. I'll try and remember to put the link in the show notes. Just a brief understanding about shaken baby syndrome, though. This occurs when a baby or child is shaken so badly that it essentially causes permanent and irreversible brain damage. In this case, Tiffany wasn't the one at fault. Tiffany had left her children alone with the babysitter, who was deemed responsible for the actual injuries. But since Tiffany was very deep in a drug addiction at this time, DHS did petition the court to remove the remaining three children, but this would never be approved. Instead, the court ordered Tiffany and her partner, Oliver Bynum Jr., to undertake drug counselling and parenting classes, which they would never complete. And they were ordered to secure sustainable and suitable housing. This would never happen either. The family would be on and off the streets, in shelters and temporary housing. And this would be a never-ending cycle, right up until Portia's death nine years later. July 7, 2000. Portia Bennett would be born to parents Tiffany Bennett and Oliver Bynum Jr. She would be the couple's fifth child in seven years. Now, it seems that at some point after Portia's birth, Tiffany and Oliver would separate, leaving Tiffany to raise her four young daughters on her own. The names of Portia's sisters have never been released to the media, and they were redacted in court, in the hopes that one day they can heal and recover and live full and amazing lives to live these lives for themselves and their baby sister. When Portia was about two years old in the fall of 2002, and for reasons that aren't clear, Tiffany would give the four girls to her younger sister, 19-year-old Candace Geiger, and her 32-year-old boyfriend, Jerry Chambers. The agreement being they would care for her four daughters and she would visit them every day, giving the couple between $50 to $80 a week to cover food and board. Tiffany and Candace did not have an easy time growing up themselves. They would be entered into the foster care system from a young age due to a lot of drug abuse in the household by their mother and the revolving door of men that would come into their lives. Maybe because of no stable father figure in their lives, Candace would fall into an abusive and very inappropriate relationship with Jerry Chambers when she was only 15 and he was almost 30 years old. 
It's honestly disgusting and very telling of what's to come. But from all accounts, this would be a highly abusive relationship. In her later mugshot, both of Kentis's eyes were black due to her being battered by Jerry. Quote, she was very easily influenced by Mr. Chambers. She suffered from battered woman syndrome. My client was a victim in that household as well. Unquote. There was a lot of drug use in this relationship too, where the drug of choice was cocaine. Jerry and Candace were also homeless and staying with Jerry's brother, Jason Chambers, and his two sons at the time Tiffany gave the girls to them. This was not an ideal situation either. Jason Chambers would later be convicted in December of 2015 of raping his 11-year-old goddaughter and indecently assaulting her 14-year-old sister in 2003. So this happened right around the time Tiffany allowed her four daughters to live in this household, her daughters being aged 9, 7, 5 and 2. Jason Chambers would later be sentenced to 15 to 30 years in prison for his crimes. March 2003. Jerry and Candace would secure their own accommodation in a tiny two-bedroom home at 1705 South 5th Street in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The family of six would share one 11 by 10 room, with the beds just being a couple of feet apart. The girls would share two beds, two children per bed. It would not take long before the house was really unlivable. Jerry also had two large pit bulls that were not trained in any way at all. The police report would later state the bedroom walls were smeared with feces, stinking of urine and swarming with flies. During this period, Tiffany's eldest daughter would live on and off with her paternal grandfather, Oliver Bynum Sr., who lived close by. He would walk her to and from school and provide her with lunch. It really does seem they had this amazing bond and he gave this little girl some stability and love for the first time in her entire life. He really gave this little girl a chance and opportunity to have a normal life. But unfortunately, this would be ripped away from both of them in March 2003, around the time the family moved into the new home. Tiffany would give a note to Kirkbride Elementary School, stating Oliver was no longer allowed around her children. Oliver would try and resolve this situation. He went to the school four times in an attempt to talk to the principal and explain the situation, for the school to see his side of the situation. He would still send lunches every day in the hopes his eldest grandchild would get them. He went to the Chambers family home three times a week, right up to Portia's death, but would be denied access to his grandchildren every time. Oliver Bynum Sr. would later testify in court that his eldest granddaughter never mentioned any abuse in the home, and he saw no sign that anything was wrong. Quote, Had I known, I would have kicked the door in myself. If I had, I would have been sitting over there. Unquote. As he pointed to where Jerry Chambers was sitting across the courtroom. Again, it's not clear why this happened. I imagine it would have been a relief for all involved that one of the children were being looked after. One less child to worry about and spend money on that could be spent on drugs. I can only assume this was a joint decision between Tiffany, Jerry and Candace to hide the escalating abuse within the home. That it was all becoming too obvious to hide with clothes and stories. That it was only a matter of time before the little girl would tell her grandfather what was going on or he would see evidence for himself. Because what was going on behind those doors was stuff of nightmares which would end with a three-year-old losing her life, 
and three other innocent little girls having to live with lifelong scars of physical, emotional and sexual abuse. When the girls first went to live with Jerry and Candace in the fall of 2002, they would later say they were treated fine. It's not clear when the abuse first started, but the girls would testify at trial it was late June to early July 2003. But there is a lot of evidence that this was not the case, and the abuse started almost immediately. At trial, Jerry's brother Jason's two sons, aged 11 and 9 years old, would testify to the abuse they saw, that the girls got hit with extension cords and belts, that Jerry would sometimes allow the two pit bulls into the home and order them to attack the children. On one occasion, the boys saw one of the dogs bite one of the girls on the eye. Quote, They got beat, they got punched, they got hit by hands and extension cords. Unquote. It's not clear what changed in the dynamics of the household to cause this escalation. Maybe it was the pressure to clean for so many children or money that was wasted elsewhere. I'm talking drugs here. Maybe it was just the violent, angry tendencies of Jerry. He couldn't bury them down any longer. But the girls would be beaten with a broom handle, fists, belts and extension cords. They would be thrown into the home's basement with the two pit bulls, who, as I said, they weren't trained and they were aggressive and Jerry knew this. The three surviving girls would later testify in court they were forced to eat dog feces and they were locked in the basement for hours at a time. During a police interview on the day of Portia's death, Candace admitted to punching the three-year-old in the stomach when she refused to eat a sandwich and she wouldn't stop staring at her. Quote, We only beat them when they do something wrong. Not every day, maybe every other day. Sometimes we smack them, sometimes we punch them, sometimes he would kick them, but he would never kick them in the face. Unquote. The abuse most definitely didn't stop at physical abuse. The girls were restricted at mealtime, all being severely malnourished at the time of Portia's murder. Portia herself had lost 50% of her body weight by the time she died. And there was sexual abuse. The 10-year-old girl would bravely testify in court of being raped numerous times in the bed of Jerry and Candace. The 8-year-old girl also showed strength beyond her years. She would testify of Jerry sexually assaulting her and she being forced to masturbate him. It is literally disgusting what these girls went through. In my opinion, I would find it very highly unlikely that Jerry wasn't already grooming the youngest two as well for his sick pleasure. Whether the sexual abuse actually happened was questioned in court by the defence, with Jerry Chambers' lawyer, Charles P. Maracci III, arguing the girls were lying about the rapes, because there was no record of either girl reporting the sexual assaults to their school nurse or teacher at the elementary school. That the first official report wouldn't be received until the day Portia died. Tiffany would later testify in court she visited her children every day and she found them to be happy and adjusted in their new home, that she saw no evidence of abuse of any kind. I call bullshit on that as well. Even if Jerry and Candace beat the girls where the bruises wouldn't show, and the girls were too scared to speak up on the abuse, all of which is very likely and very probable, but the state of the home should have sent up so many red flags for Tiffany to take back custody of the girls. I would argue any situation with their mother would be better than the hell the girls were going through here. I am fairly confident their grandfather, Oliver Bynum Sr., 
would have also helped and provided at least a temporary home for all four girls. Tiffany also could have contacted DHS and placed the girls in their care if there was no way she could have them. Tiffany also could have contacted DHS and placed her girls in their care if there was no way she could have them. Anything would have been better than letting them stay in this house of horrors, where three-year-old Portia would lose her life on August 17, 2003. August 16, 2003. An unidentified neighbour called DHS Hotline to say that a 10-year-old child had severe bruises on her face. Quote, He hits those girls like they are men. His hands are swollen from hitting them. He makes them stay in the house all the time. Unquote. A social worker from DHS went to the Chambers family home that night, but since no one was home, a note was left. No further follow-up was done. Police weren't called. Nothing. Now, I would imagine the percentage of times someone will respond to a note left by DHS would be quite low. I really don't understand how you could get a report as serious as this one was and just leave a note and that's that. And given what's to come, this was a massive failing by DHS because that very next day, three-year-old Portia Bennett would be dead. August 17, 2003. Despite knowing they had a young child wandering around the home, Jerry and Candace decided it was a good idea to have sex on the living room couch. Now Portia being only three years old, she walks in on this happening, and instead of leaving the room, she is curious, and she stands there and watches for a moment. At three years old, there is no chance she understands what she is seeing and what's going on. But this angers Jerry, and he wants to punish the little girl. He picks Portia up, walks into the bedroom and throws her tiny malnourished body into the radiator, her body only weighing about 20 pounds, half of what she weighed when she went into the care of Jerry and Candace not even 12 months earlier. Jerry threw her so hard that the medical examiner would report after her death, Portia's forehead still showed the indention from where she rested against the radiator as she slowly died wedged between the wall, bed and radiator, where she would suffocate to death. 911 would not be called until the following morning. When emergency services arrived at the home, Portia was still in the same position, still wedged in the same tight position where she had died. The autopsy would classify Portia's cause of death to be determined to be a combination of conditions. Due to multiple beatings, asphyxiation and a condition known as inanation. And inanation is defined as a lack of strength and vitality due to malnourishment, neglect and abuse. Basically, that meant her body was giving up under the stress of being starved and being beaten regularly. Her liver was lacerated. She had multiple blunt force trauma injuries to her head, chest, abdomen, back, legs and arms. Portia's tiny body was covered head to toe with old scars, marks, bruises, all in different stages of healing. A deputy medical examiner would later testify in court. A deputy medical examiner would later testify in court that Portia's injuries could only be the result of being beaten repeatedly with a belt, extension cord and fists. And she would have died slowly, slowly suffocating in that prison wedged between the bed, wall and radiator. And it wasn't just Portia. When all three sisters were examined, 
They too showed evidence of regular and severe beatings. They all showed signs of starvation and malnourishment. The 10-year-old still having those bruises on her face that were reported to DHS only days earlier. If anything, these bruises were worse. Her little eyes were swollen shut with one of the eye sockets being broken. She had scars on her back from being whipped with an extension cord or belt. This is heartbreaking what these little girls went through in that year with Jerry and Candace. Police, of course, arrested Jerry Chambers, Candace Geiger and Tiffany Bennett for their roles in Portia's death. Jerry was charged with first-degree murder, child molestation, aggravated assault, conspiracy, endangering child welfare, indecent exposure and corruption of minors. Candace was charged with third-degree murder, conspiracy and endangering child welfare. And Tiffany was charged with four counts of felony conspiracy and endangering the welfare of her children. All three would enter pleas of not guilty. Initially, the trio was scheduled to stand trial together on April 11, 2004, but this would be postponed several times. Firstly, it was when Jerry's legal team raised whether he was competent to stand trial. Now, Jerry Chambers went to extreme lengths to pretend he was mentally ill. He told a psychiatrist he was actually a 16-year-old white girl from Arizona named Daryl. He also claimed he didn't know where or what Philadelphia was, insisting he was not in jail for murder, but for a car theft charge. During the competency hearing in July 2004, the media director of the Philadelphia Court's Mental Health Clinic, he said, quote, You can just feel it in the room. He was pushing me to convince me, unquote. He went on to call Jerry's behaviour a classic case of malingering. The next delay came in the form of Jerry's legal team, requesting a downgrade of charges from first-degree murder to third-degree murder. Jerry's lawyer, Charles Maracci III, argued he could not be held responsible for his own actions due to his daily cocaine use, that because he was so heavily under the influence of cocaine, he had not meant to kill Portia. April 2005, the trial of Portia's murder and the roles of the three people had in this crime, three people who should have cared and looked after this sweet little girl, the trial would last four weeks and not one of Portia's family was there to support her and her sisters, very much still babies themselves. These girls also testified of the horrors they experienced and witnessed in that year in Jerry and Candace's custody. Homicide and Special Victims Unit detectives did not miss a day, though. These four girls had found a special place in their hearts. These detectives felt responsible to be there to show that someone cared. Said the prosecutor Richard Sachs, quote, These three girls, with the exception of their new foster parents, had the same support of blood relatives after August 17, 2003, as they had before August 17, 2003. None. Zero. Unquote. A jury of six men and six women deliberated, but just as a verdict was reached, the defence attorneys moved for a mistrial. It was discovered that even though the jury was instructed not to talk to anyone about the case, one of the jurors called an alternate jury member to let him know that the verdict had been reached. The defence attorneys argued for the mistrial, stating the deliberations may have been compromised. Now, the judge did her investigations, and she questioned this alternate juror a number of times, 
May 2005. Finally, the verdicts could be read, and Portia and her sisters would receive some justice. Their mother, Tiffany Bennett, would be found guilty on four counts of felony conspiracy and endangering the welfare of children. She would be sentenced to 20 to 40 years in prison. Tiffany was told she was not permitted to have contact with her three surviving children during her time in prison. A friend of Tiffany's was in court when the verdict was read. She started crying and throwing herself face down on the carpet. She was kicking her feet and refusing to get up, basically throwing a tantrum. The court would have to be cleared whilst officers escorted this woman out of the building. Despite Candace's lawyer, Gerald Alston, asking the judge for leniency because of her history and being a victim of Jerry Chambers herself, the judge would later state she could not justify any less time for what she had done. Quote, it would not be appropriate, and it would not reflect the complexity of the situation and the death of a beautiful little girl and the torturing of others. Unquote. Candace Gaga would be found guilty of third-degree murder for her part in Portia's murder. She was also convicted of conspiracy and endangering the welfare of her nieces. She would be sentenced to 17 to 34 years in prison. Candace crying into her hands when her verdict was read out. She would address the court, quote, I wish that she was still here. I wish I could tell her that I loved her and I'm sorry and it wasn't her fault what happened. When I get out, I want to go see my nieces and tell them how much I love them. Give me another chance. Unquote. The judge reiterated that she too was not permitted to have any contact with her nieces while she was serving her sentence in jail. Prior to trial, Jerry was offered a plea deal, whereas the death penalty would be off the table and he'd be given a life sentence without parole. He would get this if he pled guilty and agreed to not appeal any of his conviction. He declined this offer. Despite all of his and his lawyer's best efforts, Jerry Chambers would be found guilty of first-degree murder. He would also be convicted of child molestation of the other three girls. Guilty of aggravated assault on the 10-year-old girl. Guilty of conspiracy, endangering child welfare, indecent exposure and corruption of minors. Jerry kept his head down and would not look at the jurors as they read the verdict, eventually wiping away tears from his face. Jerry Chambers was sentenced to death for what he did to little Portia, and 73 to 146 years for what he did to her sisters. The judge addressing Jerry directly, quote, You truly did inflict torture, not only on Portia Bennett, but upon her surviving sisters. They will never recover from what you have done to them. Unquote. Jerry Chambers is currently being held at the State Correctional Institute in Green, which homes 157 of the state's most notorious killers. It's Pennsylvania's largest death row. His legal team are still pursuing appeal options to his death sentence. Because of what happened to Portia and the court trial, DHS launched an investigation into the handling of the complaint about the 10-year-old girl. Now it seems normal procedure to leave a note telling the family there is an open report and asking them to contact DHS to discuss if there is no one home. But there are some problems with what actually happened here when compared to the official police report. Now the social worker, Joe Maiden, claimed he went to the house that night 
and when it seemed that no one was home or everyone was asleep, he left a note on the locked metal gate out the front of the property. He said in his report he had plans to return to the property to follow up at a later date. But in the official police report, they said they didn't find any note, and here is the kicker, there wasn't even a metal gate anywhere on the property. Over the next month, DHS enforced several disciplinary actions against Joe Maiden, accusing him of lying and falsifying reports. He would announce his retirement before any real disciplinary action could be taken. He did make a statement much later in the media stating he believed he was used as a scapegoat. That even though the police never found his note or the gate, this didn't mean he didn't go to the house that night. And this would later be the official line from DHS as well. But what is even more interesting is that Joe Maiden wasn't even supposed to be the social worker on that case. It was actually assigned to another social worker, and Joe requested to take on the report himself. And then in my opinion, he didn't even bother going out to talk to the family. I understand just how overworked DHS staff are. I understand just how overworked DHS staff are. The sheer amount of casework that is assigned to them seems impossible to me, and that's only a small percentage of the reports that come into the agency. But that doesn't excuse what happened here. Joe Maiden and DHS did let Portia down in this instance. Who knows what would have happened if a social worker did make it out to their home that night. Maybe Portia would still be alive today. What is clear is that Tiffany Bennett truly let her children down when she allowed them to live with Candace and Jerry. The prosecutor summed this up best during the trial, quote, You aren't drug addicted. You aren't alcohol dependent. You are simply selfish. Your excuses are offensive. You found your children in a way that is almost incomprehensible, unquote. I truly hope that Portia's sisters can find some peace and heal and grow and live the full and amazing lives they truly deserve. A life their beautiful youngest sister was unfairly robbed by those who should have cared for her the most. Fly high, Portia Bennett. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.